topic for this evening is the life of Henrietta Zold. <coughs> okay. Henrietta Zold was born in December of 1860 in Baltimore. She's the daughter, the oldest daughter of Rabbi Benjamin and Sophie Zold. Just a little bit about the father, Benjamin Zold. He was from Hungary and went to the Pressburg Yeshiva, had smicha from Rabbi Yehuda Azod, which was a big gadol in, in those years, mid-19th century. Then he went to Germany to study in university. And in the late 1850s, he was looking for work in the rabbinate. wasn't easy to come by. Offer was made available, Temple Oheb Shalom of Baltimore, America. He didn't have in mind to move to America, but uh, Rabbi needs Parnassa. You go where the Parnassa is located. And he got married about a month before he got on the boat to go to America. And he and his young bride, they come to the, the new land. He figures he'll stay for about three, four years and go back to, to Hungary or to Germany. Didn't work out that way. He stayed at Oav Shalom as the rabbi till 1892 and remained in Baltimore the rest of his life. What kind of rabbi was he? Well, we'll we'll see. It's a shul for German-speaking Jews, and unlike many of the synagogues of that decade, the 1850s, 1860s, which were immigrant German-speaking synagogues in America, that gravitated towards reform, and often very radical reform, Temple Oev Shalom halted the progress of reform by hiring Zold. They were on the verge of adopting the Minhag America prayer book. Now, you ever hear of the Minhag America prayer book? What's the Minhag America? Well, the answer is Isaac Mayerweis, the founder of HUC in Cincinnati, wrote the Minhag America. He is the, the author of the Minhag America. Just ask him. He's, that's, the, that's the custom of America. And many reform synagogues had that prayer book up until the Union prayer book was written in the 1890s. But Zoll didn't like it. It was too radical. And he wanted to stop the progress of radical reform and adopt a sort of a middle ground position. What you might argue was a nascent conservative uppercase C position within Judaism, although it didn't go by that name and it were decades before the existence of a conservative movement. He's a moderate rabbi. And his new sitter, the Avodat Yisrael sitter, is basically a traditional prayer book with minor tinkering, unlike the radical changes of the, uh, the Minag America. And in his synagogue, he strongly encouraged Sabbath observance, Shmira Shabbos, in the traditional sense of the word, which was unusual for Americanizing rabbis to encourage the laity to be Sabbath observant. So he was a fairly traditional guy, even if we, co- we cannot call Oeb Shalom an orthodox synagogue. Where, where was it? I'm not. I don't know the geography of Baltimore. I'm, I'm a New Yorker, so I couldn't tell you. He spoke in the in the early years in German, and then later in English, which was the style of the time. That rabbis just off the boat did not have the uh, the ability in English, but they developed it after some years in America. Okay, so he has eight daughters, of whom five five survive infancy. Um, no sons. Henrietta is the oldest. She goes to school, she's a very good student, and in 1878, 
when she is 17 years old, she graduates high school, and there were opportunities for her to go to college. There were women's colleges, that, and some of her younger sisters did go, but for whatever reason, she held back. She stayed with her parents, didn't want to fly the coop. And that would be her tradition throughout life, not wanting to break free from the hold of her family, or for that matter, a hold of a job. She was reluctant to, to make a, a personal move. Well, she teaches in the Miss Adams local uh, elementary school, and she teaches in the Hebrew school the Talmud Torah of her father's synagogue. And it's somewhat rewarding, but not very rewarding. You'd think that she'd want to get married, but no. For whatever reason, she rejected a, a few potential suitors, and at the age of 32, in 1893, she finds herself past the age when people in her circumstance are typically with the husband and children, and she moves off temporarily to Philadelphia to take a job working for the Jewish Publication Society, which had been recently founded in the city of Philadelphia to produce English-language popular works, but quality works on Judaism. And the JPS has been, for the last 120 years, a tremendous resource for American Jewry, publishing some of the best English-language volumes that we have. What does she do for them? She is an editor, and even more importantly, a translator. Because, as we'll see in the decade to come, the great scholars of Judaica and of academic Jewish studies are not coming from English-speaking countries. They're coming from Central Europe. Oftentimes, they are Eastern Europeaners who went to Germany for an education, or they're just you know, German-speaking Jews who are writing these great academic works. And there is a desire on the part of the Publication Society and of American Jewry to be able to consume those works in the English language. And Henrietta is a fluent German speaker, learned it from her parents. And so she is a very competent and qualified employee of the JPS, the most important person they had on their staff. And she would remain with them for over 20 years in various capacities. But she didn't like living away from home. So she moved back to Baltimore at the age of 35 after two or three years away. She just could, didn't have it in her to break free from her parents. Meanwhile, her younger siblings were getting married and moving on in life. She wasn't. But she was busy with her work. Just uh, to point out a few items that she worked on, and maybe the synagogue library has a few of them, but there's the Heinrich Gretz six-volume History of the Jews, it was put out in 1891 through 1897 in the English language. That's Henrietta's old. Later, Legends of the Jews by Louis Ginsburg, about whom we'll say a lot more momentarily, in five volumes, of which she did the translating, and she personally wrote the sixth volume, which was the index. Um, then, the American Jewish Yearbook. And for someone like me who studied American Jewish history in graduate school, the American Jewish Yearbook is, a very, is an invaluable resource about the minutia and little details that no one cares about except for the, the person doing the research on what was going on any given year between 1904 and 1908. She did the yearbook every year by herself without, much, without any help, really. So she is producing a tremendous amount of material, not in her own name, in someone else's name. And that will 
make her slightly disgruntled that other people are getting all the glory and she's just this uh, worker, this employee behind the scenes who maybe gets a reference on the title page. Yeah. Almost certainly, yeah. Okay, so she okay. So her relationship with Jastro was that her sister married Jastro's son, and she lived with the Jastros briefly during her time in Philadelphia, and the the Zold and Jastro family were interconnected for three generations. She also did the work on Jastro's famous Talmudic Dictionary uh, because Jastro himself was of limited ability in English. She, she did much of the work on the English language side. He was the, so, so Marcus Jastro, Mars Jastro was um, rabbi in Rodev Shalom in Philadelphia and was a contemporary of Zold, and basically falls into the same category of religiosity as Zold, in that they were middle-of-the-roaders, although Jastro probably a little bit more to the left than Zold was. A little bit more to the left. Rode of Shalom was a reformed synagogue that moved slightly to the middle when Jastro became the rabbi, as opposed to Rode of Shalom, which was more to the right and was moving potentially to the left until Zold nipped it in the bud. Okay. Jastro, I don't know where he came from originally, but yes, I'm, uh, so he was not from Eastern Europe. He was for sure from, I think, Austria-Hungary. So, Henrietta is very close to her father. Her father is forced into early retirement in the early 1890s and lives out his life uh, sort of a forgotten man in Baltimore in the latter 1890s and dies in 1902. Upon her father's death, it's time to get out of Baltimore. need to spread your wings a little bit. But not too much. Her, her, Henrietta's mother, Sophie, will move with her to New York. They'll share an apartment in New York. And where in New York? Riverside Drive, and 123rd. For what purpose? Because Henrietta wants to go to the seminary. But wait a second. She's a girl, last I checked. And uh, the seminary is a place to ordain men for the rabbinate. So she had to plead with Solomon Schechter, who had been recently appointed the uh, president of the seminary, that she would like to attend classes to increase her knowledge of Judaic studies, which is important for only, not only for her own edification, but also for her work as a, uh, on the staff of the Jewish Publication Society. And after much pleading, Schechter agrees. So the Zolds move up to New York, take an apartment near the seminary, and they become part of seminary life, uh, the, the life of the professors and the faculty. So she goes to classes. She is interested in Talmudic studies, something which she had never experienced as a child. Now, in theory, she was tr- trying to learn enough to be able to edit her father's papers, that her father was something of a scholar, and she wanted to be able to work on his papers and eventually publish them, because she was enamored with her father. As it turned out, Benjamin Zold, although he was a learned man, was nothing the scholar compared to the, the faculty members of the seminary. He was uh, just a congregational rabbi with limited talents by comparison, and Henrietta would eventually come to realize that, and put aside her father's papers and think about other things. But that's what she was going to learn. She is smitten with Professor Louis Ginsburg. And now we get to the love affair part. From 1903 to 1908, for five years, there is a professional 
an personal relationship between Ginsburg and Zold. The professional was that Ginsburg was one of the major authors being published by JPS. His Legends of the Jews and Gaonica and other volumes uh, were of tremendous importance to the publishing house and to the world of Jewish studies. And Henrietta, she was the translator and editor. So they were working very closely together. But at the personal level, there was also a relationship. Ginsburg was not married. Ginsburg was born in 1873, so he's about 12 or 13 years younger than Henrietta. Who is he? He's a Lithuanian Ilui, descended from the, uh, the brother of the Vilna Gon. So he has great yichus in the world of Torah learning of Eastern Europe. But he left that world in his late teenage years to study in, the, in German universities where he got his Ph.D., uh, studying with the great Semiticists, who uh, did his doctoral dissertation on the, the rabbinic legends, the midrashic legends that were preserved in the writings of the Church Fathers, which is kind of an obscure topic, but that was his topic. And he comes to America in 1899 to work at Hebrew Union College, except that he didn't come to work at Hebrew Union College. There was no job. He came thinking that he had employment, um, and at that time, it was right around the time Isaac Mayer Wise died and Kaufman Kohler took over the, the college, it was determined that they shouldn't hire Ginsburg. Why? He's too far to the right and he's too far to the left. <laughs> Remember they said that about, uh, about Heschel, the same thing. Uh, people liked him, liked him for different reasons, polar opposite reasons, so they didn't want Ginsburg in, in Cincinnati for polar opposite reasons. On the one hand... He was very religious. Truth is, he wasn't so religious. But he, he was very from compared to your average chazerfresser in Cincinnati. Okay? But on the other hand, he was uh, an open uh, proponent of documentary hypothesis, which is a heresy. Now, not that Cincinnati wasn't a den of heresy, but they nonetheless didn't like the teaching of documentary hypothesis of the Bible. They tried to avoid, at least in those years, uh, a critical study of the Bible. So for uh, four authors of the Bible, J.E.P.D. So uh, for the, for these reasons, he was stuck in New York. He didn't go to the Midwest. He worked on the, uh, the Jewish Encyclopedia, not Encyclopedia Judaica, but the Jewish Encyclopedia, which was put out between 1901 and 1906 by Funk and Wagnalls, as opposed to Encyclopedia Judaica, which was put out by Keter in 1972. Um, <laughs> so, he's working in New York, and then when Schechter comes to New York, Schechter hires Ginsburg to be professor of Talmud. At the age of 29, he becomes professor of Talmud, where he remains there until his dying day in 1953 at the age of 80. And he, uh, Ginsburg is the greatest academic Talmudist of the first half of the 20th century. So, he's a young guy. Well, who were his competitors? I don't know, but I mean... In America? Or no, in the world. In the world. Academic Talmudist in the first half of the 20th century? Really? Uh, Yaakov Nachum Halevi Epstein was his competitor, I would say. That's about it. What about the Russian Yeshiva? No, the Hebrew, Hebrew University. What about the Russian Yeshivas in, in The Russian Yeshivas, I'm not talking about them. I'm talking about academic study of Talmud. It's a separate world altogether. Really? Yeah. What, what makes it separate? Uh, one is uh, university-style learning, and the other is old-world Yeshiva learning. The, the, the two shall not meet. Not here. Okay. So, 
they have this relationship. They, they see each other all the time. They go for walks every Tuesday on the river. They uh, eat dinner together a few nights a week. The whole neighborhood knows that they're an item, except that they're not an item. For, from Ginsburg's point of view, she was a friend, or at least so he claimed after they broke it off. But she was becoming infatuated with him. Impossibly so. He was 13 years younger, and uh, that didn't bother her. Maybe it bothered him, but it didn't bother her. Look at the president of France. Yeah, okay. So, in 1904, they had a problem. They had a problem in 1904, because Ginsburg was teaching Gemara, and they were going to learn Masech the Kiddushin. And for those who have learned Kiddushin, there are fairly uh, graphic sugyas that you wouldn't want to teach in a mixed audience. Certainly not in a mixed audience with one of them as your secret admirer. So she absented herself from some of the lectures. Okay. But in 1908, he goes off to Europe. His father is dying. And he he wants to make his father happy. So he goes off to get engaged, but he doesn't tell her that. So Henrietta is back in New York, doesn't know that her world is about to come to a crashing uh, doom, and and she gets a letter saying, oh, by the way, I'm engaged to Adele Katzenstein of Berlin, who's 22. And at this point, uh, Henrietta is 48. So, for a younger woman. Now, Adele Ginsburg would go on to become this uh, revered figure in seminary circles, Mama G. She decorated the sukkah every year. She was a fixture on the upper and the morning side heights until her death in her mid-90s, I think in 1980, if I'm not mistaken. Okay. So, Henrietta's heartbroken. What do you do when you're heartbroken? You go on vacation. You go, to, you go on vacation. So Mama Zold, Sophie Zold, says, you know what, we're going on a trip to Europe. 1909, they're going to Europe. Sophie herself is now pushing 70, but she's going to go on a transatlantic trip. They're going to see the cousins in Vienna. They're going to check out all the, the glorious cities of Europe. And then they're going to go to Palestine. And that trip made all the difference. Changed the lives of thousands of people because of that trip to Palestine. So they go. Before, I must say that uh, Henrietta was was a known Zionist. Already in the 1890s, around the same time that Herzl was writing the Judenstadt, even before the first Zionist Congress, Henrietta announced that she was a Zionist. Why? Well, two reasons. One is in Achad Ha'am style Zionism of cultural Zionism in that from Zion shall go forth not Torah in the traditional sense but Torah in the sense of Jewish culture shall spread light unto the diaspora. Many, many people who didn't think in terms of a Jewish state or a refuge for oppressed Jews believed in Zionism as a place, as a center of Judaic culture to spread light to the diaspora. It's a nice vision. And that's really what, what happened in the, in the, in the early, early years of the Yishuv. But Henrietta also believed that Jewish people in America, and especially Jewish women in America, need something of a philanthropic nature to occupy themselves in a wholesome way, in ways that are much more fulfilling than the usual bourgeois narishkeit. And she was on target there. 
Because women who didn't have to worry about uh, you know, scraping together a few pennies to feed the family, who had experienced a certain uh, comfort and wealth in America, needed to occupy their time with something worthwhile. And Zionism and the support of the building up of the Yishuv could be just that. Alright, so what does she see in 1909? Well, she sees a country that is basically empty, run by the Ottomans and run inefficiently by the Ottomans, and when she does encounter uh, people, she is horrified by the health conditions. That trachoma, is, eye disease, is rampant, malaria, tuberculosis, all sorts of bad, bad health problems, and sanitary conditions are unpleasant to speak of. So she wants to do something about that. But she's only one person. What can she do? One person can't do anything. At least so she thought originally. She sees the, um, some of the early settlements, and she wants to go from north to south. She doesn't want to see Jerusalem and the holy places first. She purposely starts off in the northern part of the country, in the Galil, to see the new settlements, the, the new Yishu, before seeing the old Yishu. What, what Yishu, what Yishu huh? So actually, when she was there, in 1909, that's when Deganya was being founded. Mm-hmm. So she's right, right there at the start of Deganya. Um, so she also sees the beginnings of Tel Aviv. When she goes further south, uh, she meets Mayor Dizengoff at, at Jaffa, and he points over to the sand dunes and says, this is going to be the new city. And Dizengoff, with his you know, foresight, says, oh, this is going to be here, the, 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 the shopping center is going to be here, the, the apartment building is going to be here. Uh, he had ideas about what would be, and they all came to pass. So she sees things that are yet to be built, but are on the verge of happening. And then she goes to Jerusalem, spends some time there, and she's not happy with the old yeshuv and the chalukah system of charity. So, but she notices something important. There are a lot of Arabs. And that's something that a, a Zionist in America, and for that matter even Zionists in Europe, didn't think much about in 1909. The Arab question was a non-question. But once you get on the ground, and you see who the porters are, and who the... Uh, the, the menial laborers are and who are the guys riding horses. You see, there's a lot of Arabs. So she, already in her mind in 1909, realizes that Zionism will have to come to terms with the Arab question. Okay. Goes back to America. It's living in New York, still working for the JPS, avoiding Louis Ginsburg like the plague, <laughs> and avoiding Adele Ginsburg even more so. Um, what does she do? In 1912, she establishes a group, the Daughters of Zion Hadassah Chapter, which later becomes just Hadassah. Why did it get the name Hadassah? So who knows the legends? Why did it become... No, that's not why it was named Hadassah. It was named Hadassah because the founding meeting, which took place at Temple Emanuel of all places a bastion of anti-Zionism, if there ever was one, although not when Judah Magnus was the rabbi, uh, was with the location of the founding of Hadassah, and it happened in late February, right around Purim. So Purim, Esther is Hadassah. There you go, Hadassah. Okay, you win the prize. Because Hadassah was the Hebrew name, Esther was the Goyesh name. Yeah. Okay. What is Hadassah going to do? They want to send medical relief to Palestine. And it's desperately needed. 
But who's going to go? You need to find volunteers from America willing to sign up for X number of years, a serious commitment to go to a, a, a faraway place with uh, horrible conditions and work on a salary that isn't all that impressive. Likely you have to find someone with ideological zeal who is willing to take one for the team. And they find a few nurses and they, they establish a sort of a visiting nurse service that uh, goes to the, the major towns. But of course, there's a problem because it's not only the, t- the towns with larger population that need medical services. The smaller yeshuvim also need it, maybe even more desperately so. Their population in raw numbers is smaller, but their needs are more acute because there's nothing, there are no hospitals around. So with all these needs, well, the American Jews, the American Jewish women, had better cough up more money and send them more, over more, more employees, more doctors and more nurses. Where do you find them? All right, so they'll find them. Don't worry. But, but, disaster strikes in 1914 in the form of World War I. And for the next four years, it's no simple thing to send people from America to the Middle East. Moreover, the situation of the Yishuv gets dramatically worse because, as I've mentioned in previous lectures, I think in the Eliezer ben Yehuda lecture, um, the Turks kicked out roughly half of the Jewish population of Eretz Yisrael on the grounds that they were, they were enemy citizens. They were Russian citizens or, or a citizen of, uh, uh, of some entity that's at war with, with uh, the Turkish uh, Ottoman Empire. Where did a lot of them go? To refugee camps in Egypt and Alexandria. And so Hadassah sent uh, some of their nursing staff to Egypt, not to Eretz Yisrael, to take care of the Jewish refugees who were dying in, in, in horrible uh, numbers, uh, in Alexandria. Okay, when the war is over, 1918, it's now time to pick up the pace and do more. And the needs are just as great as they were during the war. But the problem is money. And the reason why money is such a problem at that time is that the war had damaged the financial interests of many European Jews and especially the wealthy German Jews who were now experiencing the Weimar era of rapid inflation and just uh, you know, economic decline. The American Jews were being tapped as best as could be to give money, but the Jews of Europe needed the money. The Joint Distribution Committee was feeding and keeping alive Jews all over Central and Eastern Europe, especially Eastern Europe, who were in the, uh, suffering from the turmoil of the Russian Civil War. So there isn't that much money available to be sent to the small Jewish community of Eretz Yisrael. As important as Zionism might be, even to the Zionists, still you have millions of Jews who are suffering in Europe, about 100,000 or less at that point in Eretz Yisrael, who need help. Well, where do you get better bang for your buck? I don't know. That's, that's the, the struggle in terms of raising money. But Hadassah is committed. They're committed to medical relief to the Jews of Israel. And so they send the American Zionist Medical Unit, the AZMU, which was a group of 45 doctors and nurses that were going to establish small uh, hospitals in Jerusalem, in Tel Aviv, Jaffa, uh, in Sfat, and clinics in several, many other parts of the country. And their work was going to be overseen locally by uh, Dr. Uh, Rubinow. American doctor. 
who couldn't get a job in a, a New York hospital because of anti-Semitism, or so he said. That's why he was willing to go to Palestine. So many of the, uh, the doctors who uh, had trouble finding prestigious positions on account of uh, bigotry found uh, they, they could get, make a career in, in, in Eretz Israel. Okay. Henrietta Zold, as the head of Hadassah, she was president from 1912 to 1926, is in a little bit of a jam. There are two competing worldviews of Zionism and of Zionist philanthropy. One school of thought is represented by the Americans and the American-Americans as opposed to the Russian-Americans. The American-Americans are led by Louis Brandeis, Supreme Court Justice. He was not a Supreme Court Justice when he first got involved in Zionism in 1915. He's appointed to the court a year later, and he continues to be an active leader in the, the Federation of American Zionists, FAZ, which was the forerunner of the ZOA, the Zionist Organization of America. Brandeis and his colleagues believe that American financial support for the Yishuv should make financial sense. It should be capitalist in nature, not socialist, which puts it at odds with the labor Zionist crowd and the Russians. And it should make sense in that over time philanthropy would no longer be needed. In other words, you're not a, a perpetually extending your hand off to your American rich cousins uh, to support this project. It has to be viable. Also, it has to be done in a systematic way that funds are not squandered and there's accurate track kept of every dollar spent. So this sort of Western efficiency, which is at odds with sort of laissez-faire socialism, um, makes a clash of, of societies, of the Americans versus the Russian Zionists. So Brandeis and Julian Mack and the FAZ crowd, they want American control, tight control, of the purse strings of whatever money comes from America to Palestine, including Hadassah. Whereas the Russians, they're more easygoing about it. But what do they want? They want on-the-ground local control over the money. In other words, you give it, but you don't tell us what to do with it. Once it comes here, we who live in Palestine, we figure out how to spend it without you, put, put, you know, putting your nose into our business. So that's a big machlaikis. Henrietta was more sympathetic to the American position, that of those who give the dollars determine what happens. Although even she realized that eventually the issue would have to grow up. It would have to grow from infancy and adolescence into an adulthood where it ran its own affairs, including the money that was given from abroad. But it wasn't ready to do that just yet. But her other problem which wasn't an issue of the Russians versus the Americans in Zionism, was the men versus the women. Hadassah was a ladies' organization. It was an independent organization. It was raising its own money. And it wants to control the medical services that it dispenses. Whereas the menfolk, in transitioning from the FAZ to the ZOA, wanted to take over the Hadassah and make it like a almost non-existent adjunct uh, a, a, a appendix to, uh, to the, the men's organization. The ladies didn't like that. They fought tooth and nail for their own independence. 
and they didn't always succeed. There were times when Henrietta Zold's group basically had to submit to the, the dictates of the ZOA and the, the, the larger Zionist organization, the World Zionist Organization. But they did their best, at least as far as the, the medical unit was concerned, of keeping it separate. And the American Zionist Medical Unit became the Hadassah Medical Organization in 1924. Now, what did they do? So, aside from, from clinics and visiting nurses and visiting doctors, they also established a nursing school, which graduated their first class in 1921. It was founded in 1918, graduates in 1921. I'll just tell you a little story about the graduation ceremony, which was delayed because of the Arab riots. Um, but in December of 21, they had the ceremony. And the Zionist executives in, a, in Palestine should have been there on the dais at the graduation. But they weren't. It's like if at the graduation from Ritz, the Russian yeshiva is boycotted. So only one member of the executive was there. The others didn't feel like it was necessary to show up. They were snubbing Hadassah. Not nice. Henrietta is running the proceedings. There are some speeches in Hebrew. Then the one member of the executive, Dr. Eder, who was a British Zionist, he was going to speak, and he was going to speak in English. And Henrietta gets a little script, a little note passed to her from the third row. What does the note say? The note says in Hebrew, Don't disgrace the land of Israel by allowing a man to speak in English. Who wrote it? No. Eliezer ben Yehuda was sitting in the third row uh, with his wife, and, said, and, and uh, knew what was going on. He was hearing something that wasn't Lashon Kodesh, you know, wasn't Ivrit. And he sent the note, don't disgrace Eretz Israel by allowing him to speak in English. He spoke in English. Okay. In 1920, Henrietta Zold moves to Israel. Why? Mother still alive? Mother died in 1916. So now it's just her and her sisters who were all married and living in different parts of the world. So she's been on her own for a few years. She moves to Palestine in 1920. Why does she go? Because the director of the medical unit had unceremoniously resigned and someone needed to run the affairs of the, uh, the medical unit on the ground in, in uh, Palestine. So she agrees to do it on a temporary basis. Who did fundraising in America? Well, so she continues to go back and forth over the next two decades to do fundraising, but other people run the affairs of Hadassah back home uh, in America. Uh, using Henrietta's good name as uh, a way of selling the, the goods because people knew Henrietta's old. Certainly by the 20s, by the 30s, by the early 40s, she was a very f- a famous person and she was a VIP. So if you just drop a name, oh, wow, Henrietta's old. So she doesn't need to physically be present to, to make it happen, although for milestone birthdays, she would often reappear for a big party where they would raise a lot of money. Okay. So she goes to Eretz Yisrael and she lives in Jerusalem. She comes right as the Arab riots of 1920 are winding down. And she knew all along that the Arab question was a very serious question that had not been adequately addressed. But she didn't know what to do about it. She's a pacifist. In World War I, she opposed the war. Why did she oppose the war? She loves Germany. Loves Germany. And the Americans were fighting against the Germans. So World War I disappointed her terribly. But what about Jews fighting Arabs for supremacy in Eretz Israel? She doesn't like that. We should learn to get along. Learn to get along. She initially met Zeb Jabotinsky um, when he was in Acre Prison. 
serving a 15-year prison sentence. Now, if you remember, we discussed Jabotinsky. Did Jabotinsky serve a 15-year prison sentence? No, he served three months. But he was sentenced to 15 years. Why? For uh, assembling an arsenal of weapons and an arms cache uh, and developing uh, proto-Haganah from guys who had been demobilized from the, uh, the, Jewish brigade, uh, the Jewish legion. And the British didn't like that, so they arrested him and threw him in a slammer for a 15-year sentence that was quickly uh, dismissed. He was exiled, right? He was eventually exiled nine years later and never could, could come back. So she meets him and is sympathetic to his plight while he's in jail, but she totally disagrees with his worldview about a, a warrior nation in Israel. No, a peaceful nation in Israel. Peaceful nation. So, 1923, she goes back to America. Her work was seemingly done. She wants to go back to running Hadassah from her own home base. Palestine is now a thing of the past. She's done whatever work she could do, and there's progress being made. But, 1926, she goes back to Eretz Israel. And even in the three years that she was in America, she made several trips back and forth. She was a, had a lot of miles on her credit card. Why does she go back? There's more, there's more medical work to be done. The established... Uh, two weeks? Two weeks each way. Two weeks each way, yeah. About two weeks, yeah. By boat. By boat, yeah. Uh, I, I'm not sure she ever flew in a plane. Maybe in the late 30s. I, I don't know. But uh, all of her travel was by boat. So... And you basically took a boat to Trieste or Marseille and then you... To, well, sometimes they took they, they took to, uh, a boat to Alexandria, and then a railroad to Cairo, and then a railroad up through the Sinai into to Jaffa, or they went a uh, boat to Trieste, or uh, or Istanbul, and then took a railroad down through Damascus into the Galilee. Those were the two options. Uh, well, those didn't exist then. So um, she goes back because there's a lot of work to be done. The founding of the hospital in Mount Scopus, the establishment of uh, other medical facilities in, uh, around the country. And plus, she really wanted to be there. I think at that point in her life, she realized better, better Palestine than America. She's part of a, a group of Americans in Eretz Israel who never really fit in. Even though she would rise to very high-level rank in the Yishuv, she never really fit in. She was always an American, and by the way, she was never comfortable with spoken Hebrew. She could speak it, but she was never comfortable in spoken Hebrew. It was her third or fourth language. Well, her marriage status also had been a factor here. Everybody, one time, all her contemporaries were married women. They were, uh, which made it difficult to be back home. It was easier, in some sense, socially, to be abroad. Uh, in, in Israel, she never had her own home. She lived as a boarder in someone else's home, which was a little bit uncomfortable, but she worked 12 hours a day, 14 hours a day. She was a workaholic. She okay. like a more aristocrat like Abi even was? She, would, she never had the money to be an aristocrat. She was poor. She didn't have money. But uh, she had status as an employee of the Jewish people. So in 1927, having never been invited to... A, the Zionist Congresses in Europe, she finally was. And not only did she become a delegate to the Zionist Congress, she is appointed to the Zionist Commission, which is the, the executive committee in Palestine. You have the executive committee of, of the, the Zionist movement that is in Europe, led by Chaim Weizmann, but you have the people on the ground who actually spend the money on programs for the Yishuv. 
So what is in her basket, her portfolio? She becomes the minister, so to speak, of health, not surprisingly, given her work with Hadassah, and education. Education, she finds, is a problem. There are three systems of education in Eretz Yisrael. There are the labor Zionists on the kibbutzim. They have their agenda, which is a very atheistic curriculum. You have the general Zionists, who are non-socialists, and for that matter, not even reactionary right-wingers. They're sort of middle-of-the-roaders who live in the cities. And then there are the Orthodox uh, uh, Zionists, the Mizrahi. So you have three systems. You have the, the Mizrahi system, the general Zionist, the Avodah crowd. What about the Arabs? The Arabs, forget about the Arabs. They have their own problems. And the Haredim and the Old World Sephardim, forget about them. Three, from the new Yishuv, three entities with different curriculum. And how you amalgamate them, you can't. So her struggles were, were very mighty struggles that never really... Then it never really went anywhere because even once the state was established, you had mamlachti, mamlachti dati, private dati, and chinuch atzmai. Okay, and then the Arabs. So these different types of education had been around since the early period of the British Mandate and had never been reconciled. Yeah. Right. So because because the uh, for the for the crowd that was uh, attached to the various embassies and consulates and the archaeology institute, all the, all the Americans and, and, and Western European Gentiles who lived in Yerushalayim uh, were looking for education for their children, and there was strong Catholic education, and they owned a lot of property, which became a real problem once the state was established and there were no diplomatic relations with the Vatican about how to deal with those properties. I don't doubt it because they probably were good schools in terms of secular education. Um, the Alliance Francaise had sponsored some of the earlier uh, Yishuvim uh, for you know in the 1870s, 1880s, uh, but they're not nearly as much of a factor at this point. So the Americans were the, were, were the money people. After World War I, the, the, the Western European Zionists and philanthropists didn't have much to give, except for key figures like. Uh, uh, certain Rothschilds, um, but the, 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 on the whole, the, popula- the Jewish population of Western Europe wasn't giving big dollars. Okay, so this is her portfolio from 1927 to 1929. In 1929, everything changes because the Jewish agency is established. What is the Jewish agency? It still exists, by the way, in case you didn't know. I don't know why it exists, but it does. The Jewish agency was a, a way to swindle diaspora Jews out of their money. That was what the Jewish agency was. Basically, the Zionist movement had limited resources financially. And the British mandate had a, a, a codicil that said that the Arab population of the land and the Jewish population of the land will each create an agency which will be semi-governmental and interact with the, with the mandate authorities to, pro- to provide services for their constituencies. Well, the Zionist Commission was basically that Jewish agency for the first decade of the mandate. But that was just local Zionists being supported by the shekel contributions of Zionists around the world. But that's not enough. We need the non-Zionists and maybe even the anti-Zionist rich machers, the Yahudim of the West, to give. But why would they give to, a, uh, to the Yishuv if they're non-Zionists? The answer is, give them a say over what happens. 
So the Jewish agency was established in the summer of 1929 as the brainchild, basically, of Chaim Weizmann to bring in Western, especially American, rich Jews onto this board of the Jewish agency so that the Yishuv would no longer be just a Zionist project. It would be a Jewish project that Jewish philanthropists, even with non-Zionist tendencies, could give in good faith to, uh, to uh, building projects that they approved of, that they agreed to. We're talking about, exactly, temple, the, the Temple Emanuel crowd. The Jewish Committee crowd. The Jewish, American Jewish Committee crowd. Felix Warburg. So eventually it did. This and World War II. Were <laughs> the events of October 29 affecting the uh, fall? So those hadn't happened yet. I know, but two months away. Okay. Three months away. Well, so the, the major concerns of 1929 are the Arab riots in the summertime and then the, and then the stock market crash. Right. So the Arab riots uh, changed things in that the defense of the Yishuv is now the defense of Jewish lives against uh, enemies of Jewry, not just Zionists versus Arab marauders. So even a non-Zionist Jew could have a sympathetic uh, opinion about the fact that Jews in Eretz Yisrael are, are, are being butchered. Okay. So with this new setup, what's Henrietta Zold's position? She's kind of kicked out of the, uh, the, the, the executive committee, but then brought back in in 1931 on the Vad Lumi. The Vad Lumi, and she becomes the Minister of Social, of Social Services. Okay, that's a good thing. Problem is, there are no social services in Eretz Yisrael. There's not one social worker. And so, here is where she has her greatest success. Her career was made, really, in the last year of her life. She accomplished many great things, but the last decade was her best decade. She understands that it's not easy for someone to come from uh, the cultivated world of Western Europe, or even Central or Eastern Europe, to uh, the Middle East, where life is rough, and the food supply is slim, and the sanitation isn't all that great. Okay? She understands it's not an easy transition when you make Aliyah 80 years ago, 90 years ago. So some people are going to have trouble fitting in, especially if they come alone, they come young, widowed, orphaned, whatever it might be. And there needs to be a social services network to accommodate the real-world needs of individual people in Eretz Yisrael. The, the main Zionist figures didn't worry about such petty little things. All they cared about was mass immigration, bring them in by the boatload, big numbers. We need numbers to convince the world and the, the Goyim and the British that we mean business, that we can establish a state. So even if you have a thousand orphans, as long as they, they cross the threshold into the country, we're, we're in the clear. Whereas Henrietta's of the opinion, no, these are a thousand orphans who have trouble, who have real, real problems, and you have to deal with them. Okay. In 1933, with the Nazi takeover of Germany, uh, things change uh, dramatically very quickly. It's not easy for a Jew in Germany to get out. They can leave. They just can't go anywhere. There's no one to, nowhere for them to go. No one will take them. So they want to, so some want to go to the Yishuv, but the certificates are few and far between. The British control the certificates, and they are uh, not easily distributing them. So an idea came about, Youth Aliyah. What is Youth Aliyah? It's where a child goes alone, without parents, sometime between the ages of 13 and 17, to Eretz Yisrael, and becomes a pioneer 
in the, the, the literal and figurative sense. Well, are the kids from bourgeois middle-class uh, families in Berlin and Hamburg and Munich and Dusseldorf or wherever, are they ready to become a chalutz on a kibbutz in the middle of nowhere in the Galilee? They're not ready for that. So you know, preparation camps in Germany, in Austria, in Czechoslovakia, okay, hachshara camps. Who figured out this idea of youth aliyah? That's a big machlokes. So we know who did it. But the, who gets the kavod? That's the machlokas. So Recha Freyer, who was a rebbitzin in Germany, in 1933 came up with the idea of the youth aliyah. Send the kids. We can't save the parents. They're doomed to whatever the doom, the fate is of German Jewry. And no, no one's anticipating a genocide in 1933-34. But, you know, German Jewry is doomed. Let's at least save the children. Henrietta Zold's not in favor of it at first. She thinks it's ridiculous. Why would you take kids from... Uh, prosperous or semi-prosperous uh, westernized countries, uh, industrially de- developed countries, and send them to a hellhole, which was you know a, a random spot in a stony cliff in the Galilee, where there are, where there are two toilets for a hundred people. She really she she didn't understand at first the urgency of bringing people out of Central Europe. Now why not? She loved Germany. She loved. She couldn't understand that the Nazi takeover of Germany meant the end of German Jewry and the end of civilization as we knew as we knew it. Okay, she, it, it took her a long time to figure that out. But in 1934, she said, "Okay, we'll do it." And she became the head of Youth Aliyah in Eretz Israel, and Freyer was head of the Jugendhilfe uh, in Germany. And over the next five years, but. 4,000, between three and 4,000 kids came to Eretz Yisrael. They went to the Ben Shemin Youth Village and they went to Kibbutzim uh, in the Galil and in the Shvela. Was that part of the white No, that's not, but it's before the white paper. Before the white paper. So we're talking 34 through 39, through, through the summer of 39. And Henrietta has a... Okay, we're going to get to that right now. So Henrietta goes to, to the Haifa Harbor every time the boat arrives with the kids. She's their mother. She never had children of her own. She's the mommy to all these children of the youth Aliyah. She greets every one of them with a handshake and a hug and knows them by name. She knows every last one of them. She's very careful. She works long hours to understand the plight of the individual child immigrant. Okay. What about the kids from Eastern Europe? Poland is, is terrible. It's a horrible place in the mid-30s. Okay? The regime has turned uh, anti-Semitic, and although they're not the Nazis, it's still an un- uncomfortable place, and people want to get out of Poland. Henrietta Zold was very slow to understand the Nazi threat, and was even slower to realize the situation in Poland would be just as bad, if not worse. And so she doesn't deal with Eastern European youth aliyah. It doesn't really exist. It's mainly Central European in reaction to the Nazis. In some ways, although it was a bad thing in the sense that lives that could have been saved were not, it actually made perfect sense because the, the, the Russian Zionists, the Eastern European Zionists, never trusted Henrietta Zold with their own, their own kin. The Germans were never Zionists to begin with. They were a bunch of uh, assimilated types and now only when they're desperate, when the Nazis take over, they want to suddenly become uh, fly-by-night Zionists and they want to come to Israel. So let Henrietta handle those people, her, her kinsmen. Whereas the real Jews of Eastern Europe, uh, the real Yidden, 
Don't let her touch that. They kept it a, a, away from her department. So, she's doing good work. Then the war starts. White paper means immigration is going to fl- slow uh, to a trickle. One of the other problems is Henrietta Zold was a person who played by the rules. She didn't believe in illegality. But one of the important components of life in the Yishuv was what? Illegal immigration. Okay, illegal immigration was essential to building up the demographic strength of the Yishuv and to saving lives. But she was too closely aligned with the... uh, uh, the, the fancy, uh, the decorated officers of the British Mandate. You know, she she knew the High Commissioner. She was on close personal terms with all the the leading officials of the Mandate. She played by the rules, the official rules. Don't break the law. If you have a certificate, you come in. You don't have a certificate, you don't come in. We'll beg for a certificate, but if they don't give it, they don't give it. That's that was her policy. Now you can understand how the Ben Gurion types and the Labour Zionists would laugh at that as being absurd. And so there was never a real harmonious relationship between the great you know, pantheon of heroes of Zionism, whose names you all recognize, and Henrietta Zold. She was, yes, she was important, but there was a disconnect there. Okay. There's another reason for the disconnect, and that is on the Arab question. Henrietta Zold was part of the Brit Shalom. The name sounds trafe already, Brit Shalom, right? So what is Brit Shalom? It was in the ninth. Okay, so Judah Magnus, as president of the Hebrew University, and some of his colleagues, including Ernst Simon and Martin Buber, and other figures, although Buber is a late arrival, but in the 1920s, these ivory tower intellectuals established a group of peace lovers who wanted Jewish-Arab reconciliation, and whenever there was an outburst of anti-Jewish-Arab violence there was a tendency to blame not one party, but all three parties. The British for not having sufficient police forces, and to truth be told, that's a fair criticism, because there were insufficient police forces, and oftentimes they were Muslim who would not uh, take up arms against their fellow Muslims. So it didn't matter that they were in a British uniform, it wasn't going to work. Okay? It wasn't until they brought in Sikhs from India to serve as police force in Palestine that there was real uh, law and order. This was in response to the riots in the 1930, late 30s. But in the 1920s, so blame the, Ar- blame the British for insufficient police forcing, blame the Arabs for their, you know, third world butchery, and blame the Jews for not trying hard enough to get along with the Arabs. Well, that sort of attitude isn't going to win you too many friends. Um, it may satisfy a person's moral qualms, but it doesn't really work uh, as realpolitik. In 1942... David Ben-Gurion went to America and famously adopted the Biltmore Platform. You familiar with the Biltmore Platform? So at the Biltmore Hotel, the Zionist movement, in reaction to what was going on in, East, in, uh, in Eastern Europe and the slaughter of Jews, called for a Jewish army, which eventually came into existence in the form of the Jewish Brigade in 1945, 44-45, it fought in Italy, But the other thing is, they finally admitted, we want, at the end of the day, a Jewish state in Palestine. Now, what's the big gadilla about saying, the Zionists saying, I want a Jewish state in Palestine? The answer is that for 25 years, they had been very secretive about the whole thing. Yes, Herzl wrote in 1896 about a Jewish state, and spoke about it in 1897, and people spoke about it at Zionist congresses all throughout. But the, the leadership 
in dealing with the international community always spoke in terms of a Jewish home in Palestine, building up the, uh, the, the, uh, the culture, building up the demographic strength, but never about a political state run by and for Jews, a Jewish state. That conforms to the Balfour Declaration. Really. So, right, so the Balfour Declaration, which doesn't deal with, with Jewish statehood, just deals with Jewish homeland in, Pal- in Palestine, national home, uh, was carefully designed uh, to avoid offending the Arabs, and Zionist propaganda for a quarter century was carefully designed to not rile up the British, who had to placate the Arabs. But by 1942, in light of the, uh, the genocide in, in Europe and the realities on the ground in Eretz Israel that Jewish uh, uh, population had grown sufficiently that there really could be a state that would defend itself against an Arab onslaught, so Ben-Gurion was no longer hesitant to, to admit the truth. We want a Jewish state in Palestine. But what, what was his bargaining chip? Nothing. <laughs> you know, I mean... Nothing, to be honest. You know, an Italian brigade doesn't do it for you. No, but uh, sometimes people just speak their mind because they feel like it. After years of pent-up frustration, uh, and in the face of your own people being uh, horribly murdered, people say the, the honest truth after years of obfuscating. So... For Henrietta Zold and for the far lefties in the Hebrew University, this is no good. After all, the Jews are only one-third of the population of, the, of British Mandate Palestine. What, are you going to have uh, a minority rule uh, over the majority in a, by, by force of arms? It would lead to war. It would lead to uh, discrimination. They couldn't countenance such a thing. So they formed an organization called Ichud, which means unity or unification. Um, and what was the point? That there should be unfettered Jewish immigration, but the political fate of the country will rest in the citizenry of whatever ethnic background they might have. And so it'll be a Jewish-slash-Arab state just because those are the people who live here. Not a Jewish state, not an Arab state, but a Jewish-Arab state. So... The Ichud, with this statement, offended a lot of people. And um, Hadassah asked Henrietta Zold for a clarification. Can you believe that? Hadassah, her organization that she founded 30 years prior, had to ask in an angry tone for a clarification. What did you mean by that? And so she was able to wiggle herself out of it. You know, I didn't, I didn't mean anything wrong. Okay, in 1943, I see we're running out of time. If you got to go to Mara, oh, we, 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 we dive in here. We have enough. To, we'll dive in here. Do we have enough for a minion? Yeah. We have enough for a minion. Okay. Okay. As long as we have six daveners, we'll be okay. Okay. So, in 1943. Yeah. We got. We got. We got it. We got it. Okay. So, in 1943 was Henrietta's last big hurrah. The Yaldei Tehran, the children of Tehran. What happened? The, ch- the children uh, of Polish Jews who fled eastward into the Soviet Union, some of them actually survived what was a very difficult journey from Poland through uh, western Russia to Siberia to uh, wherever. But parents sometimes didn't survive. You had orphans. And by hook or by crook, they made it to Iran, 
with the help of the, the Joint Distribution Committee, the Jewish Agency, and the British authorities, they made it to Iran. And they were hanging out in Tehran from late, uh, from summer of 42 to January of 43. The goal was to get them to Eretz Israel. The British would allow it. Trouble is, how are you going to get there? Iraq is in between Iran and Palestine. And last I checked, Iraq wasn't friendly to Jews. Aside from the fact that it was Nazi at that time, um, even if it wasn't Nazi, it was, it was Iraq. Okay? So, very long, protracted negotiations. Finally, there's a, there's a way out. You take the kids to Karachi, Pakistan, and they get on a boat, and they go around the horn uh, of, of uh, the Arabian Peninsula, up to Suez Canal, to Suez, onto a train, up to, to, to Palestine. A long journey. It had to be kept secret, lest malevolent actors interfere. Finally, they get to Palestine on February 18, 1943. And they go to Atlit, which was the detention facility for processing. And now the real hard part begins. It was hard enough getting them there. Once they're in Israel, oh, this is a big machlokas. You see, the youth aliyah had an advantage from, the 30, from 1934 to 1939 in that the parents were alive and parents controlled the, the destiny of their children. If the parents want to send the kid on aliyah without, you know, alone, they'll do that, but they'll give guidance to the madrichim as to what kind of Jewish identity they want their children to have. And based upon that instruction, the kid will either be sent to a Marxist or a socialist place or a religious place or a sort of middle-of-the-road place, there's ideological guidance by the parental figure. But if you have 750 orphans, what's <coughs> going to happen to them? So what, what do you think is going to happen? The Zionists, the labor Zionists, want to turn them into uh, tray-feeding uh, atheists, uh, Hebrew speakers. And the rabbis, what do they want? Send them off to the yeshiva, to the, or at least to the Mizrahi kibbutzim, which were, there weren't that many of them, by the way. So, but how do you know? How do you know what the parents would have wanted? The parents are dead. So here's the, the, what Henrietta decided. She had a committee, and each kid would come before the committee. It must have scared the hell out of them, because they're coming before a, a committee of adults at a big table, and they're being inter- interrogated. So the, the, the policy was, if you were over 14, you decided your own fate. If you were under 14, the committee had to investigate what was your life like before the war. So they asked questions. Henrietta would ask them in broken Yiddish, because she really didn't speak Yiddish. Did your father go to shul? And the kids would ask, answer, like, you know, sort of joking around, oh, what's shul? Like, they, they, they would play dumb. A lot of them didn't really want to cooperate. What kind of school did you go to? Did you learn secular studies? Did you speak Polish at home? Did you do this? Did you do that? To try to get a flavor for their linguistic uh, affinity, for their religious level of observance, their, the kind of schooling they had, ideological, uh, you know, uh, direction of the family. They did their best. But, of course, even doing your best is never good enough because the chief rabbis and all the, the big rabbis in the Western countries uh, were saying, oh, you've got to send them to religion. All the Jews of Eastern Europe were religious, the myth. All the Jews who died in the Holocaust in Eastern Europe were, were, were from Jews. They were Hasidim and Meshomrei Torah, which is nonsense. It's not true. Okay? But that's the, what, what a certain element within our society wants to portray as having been true. And with the Yaldei Tehran, that was their opportunity to try to enforce that uh, message on unsuspecting children. In the end, there was a good faith effort to try to place kids wherever it was appropriate. But even to this day, the anti-Zionists, the Haredim, 
we'll, we'll speak of the Yaldei Tehran as an example of cutting off kids' payas and, t- and teaching them you know, all sorts of heresy. It's not how it, how it worked. I mean, yes, they were examples of Madrichim. They were examples of Madrichim in, in this process who were aggressively hostile to religion and behaved atrociously. But on the whole, Henrietta Zold and her committee did what they could. Okay, the last point is she dies in 1945, in February 45, at the age of 84. Uh, she's buried in the uh, Harazetim. One of the children from the youth aliyah says Kaddish at her grave, you know, one of her many thousands of children for Mama Henrietta. And in 1948, her grave is desecrated by the Jordanian Legion, as happens with most of the graves on Harazetim. In 1967, uh, the, rab- the, uh, the Rabbanut of the Vatsahal goes looking for graves of VIPs on Harazetim, and they find it with some some measuring device, they were able to figure out exactly which was her grave, and they cleaned it up and put up a new headstone. And that is the story of Henrietta Yazold. Okay. Well, time for one question, if we have any. Yeah, okay. What I'm very much impressed is how she influenced